Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you on the Lord's Day. If you would take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. You can either page or thumb, tap your way to your copy of the Scriptures. As you're doing so, I'd like to thank the elders at Cornerstone for the opportunity to serve you this morning as we consider together the beauty of God as He has revealed Himself to us in the Scriptures. When the elders asked me to consider preaching, I in turn asked them to, to pray about which text they would find fitting for the church at this point in the church's history. And when they suggested Colossians chapter 3, I eagerly agreed because it's a text that God has used radically in my heart to change me and to shape my family and our understanding of church and how we're to relate together as Christians. With that being said, I feel like I should confess up front that men who come to this pulpit have nothing special to offer in themselves. And I'm no different. I'm not particularly wise or intelligent or well-spoken, but that's okay. Because we have this precious gift of the Scriptures that has been preserved and translated for us. And moreover, we have a promise that God's Word never returns void. God always accomplishes what He intends. He never fails to achieve His purposes. And I've prayed diligently with the elders and completely banking on the fact that by His Holy Spirit, God will come and work in our hearts this morning. So, with that being said, would you please turn to the Lord with me in prayer. Father, no one knows more than You how desperately I need this truth to sink into my heart. No one has been more patient with me. No one has suffered more on my behalf than You And I'm trusting you completely to do your work. Father, I cannot change the heart of anyone. I can't even change my own heart. So I come this morning pleading that your Spirit would come and move in our hearts to change us and to make us more like Christ. Father, let my words fall to the ground, blow away, and be remembered no more. And only let your word remain to the name and the glory of Jesus Christ. Let me invite you to place your eyes on your copy of the Scriptures and let's read together so that we can see God's majestic Word. Looking in Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another... Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, 
whether in word or deed, do it all, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We come to this beautiful text, and if I was going to try to summarize this, or if I was going to try to put it in 140 characters and send it electronically, I'd probably say something like this. Because of the Gospel of Christ, believers are freed up to live peacefully in authentic authentic Christian relationships where we worship God together. Now you have to keep in mind that we are dropping in on Paul in in a book, in a letter to a church that we're picking up halfway through. And keeping a Pauline form, Paul has already covered a lot of information in chapters 1 and in chapters 2. And he's assuming that his main points are already fresh on our minds. And so in this text, he's beginning with this classic but exciting statement of Christian identity. Look in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Is this language shocking to you? Is it surprising? Because it probably should be. It's a remarkable claim. It's remarkable even for those of us who have heard this sort of language before. I know that some of us have grown up in church our whole lives. And so when we read or when we hear phrases like holy and beloved, we we glaze right over it. Because we're prone to grow too familiar with what is amazing. I'd be willing to bet that this morning... None of us, when we walked out to our cars this morning, looked up at the sky and thoughtfully considered that we live on a planet that is suspended in space by nothing, and it happens to be spinning through the atmosphere at over a thousand miles an hour. I was looking this morning for my study out, and I looked at the trees, and the wind was not blowing at all. The world is spinning. Things that are familiar to us often grow dull. We are prone to forget. Wonder and amazement fade with familiarity. And it's helpful to note that Paul doesn't just throw around amazing language. It's actually a summary statement that's heavily depending on what he's already said in the first couple chapters of Colossians. In fact, he spent the first two chapters building a case for the fact that we are indeed God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. But since we don't have time to read through all of it, I want to ask you to look with me back in Colossians chapter 1. And let's just look briefly at a crucial passage that I think will be helpful to us as it bears so much weight on this text that we have at hand today. So if you turn to Colossians chapter 1, and let's look first in verse 21. God's Word says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This word hostile is the same word that is often translated enemy. It's the same word that Jesus used when He said, love your enemies and do good. The Scriptures repeatedly claim that the natural man has set himself up as an enemy of the Almighty God. That you and I in our natural state are enemies of God. Now I would imagine that most of us here would probably acknowledge that at some point in our lives we've sinned. We've done something wrong. We've broken a law. We've done something we knew we shouldn't do. And perhaps some of us would even be willing to admit that we know we should honor God and we haven't done it as we ought. 
But an enemy? An enemy of God? That's probably not at the top of our hearts. But friends, according to the Scripture, our problem is not just that the natural man has done some things wrong. Our problem is not even just that man fails to honor God as we ought. The problem is that the natural man sees God as a threat to his safety and to his happiness. That we see God as an enemy. And so we continually, willingly, and strategically set ourselves up in opposition to God and to His reign and His rule of His world. For the natural man, the most terrifying thought is that anyone but ourselves would rule our lives. We know and we hate in our natural state that God demands utter allegiance and solitary worship. The natural man knows that God hates his idols. The natural man is terrified that if God was to reign in his world unattested, that he would tear down all his idols and leave him bankrupt because they were precious to him. The natural, man that God, the natural man knows that God threatens everlasting damnation for their service to idols and that he would be justified to carry it out against us. We love our freedom. We hate any perceived threat to our freedom. That's, this is how Job acknowledges the heart of the wicked when he says, What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit do we get if we pray to Him? It's the same sentiment that Pharaoh had when he said, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. When God is a perceived threat, the natural man is eager to take up arms and like any good warrior would, wave a flag in his face that says, Back off, don't tread on me. And because of all this, because we belittle God's glory, and because we despise His right to govern our lives, we are justly subject to the full measure of God's wrath. Friends, the natural man is truly at enmity with God. So the question is, what happened in chapters 1 and 2? Right? If Paul can say that this person that was once alienated and hostile, an enemy is now called chosen, holy, and beloved. His answer is found in chapter 1, verse 19. So let's look there together. In Colossians 1, Paul says, For in Him, and that is Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether in heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. My dear friends, the reality of the Gospel is that God saw the brokenness of our world because of our idolatry. But He initiated a plan to take all that was wrong and to make it right. 
to renew and restore the world as He originally created it, where man was at peace with God and man was at peace with each other. And so God did the unthinkable. I remember Tim mentioning how the angels looked at the plan of the Gospel with wonder and amazement. And that's what I thought of here. That God did the unthinkable. That while we were still enemies, He sovereignly placed His persuasive, elective love on us and called us beloved. And then, to the angels' amazement, God became man. God dwelt among us and the fullness of God dwelt in Christ and Christ came with one purpose, to make peace with God on our behalf. You see, God is a holy and righteous judge. He could not, He would not leave evil unpunished. He would be cruel to do so. He would, he would cease to be God. He would certainly cease to be just and He would be impotent. But to make peace between God and man, Christ came, He spilt His blood on a cross. He took the full wrath of God, which God intended for His enemies. And Christ bore it. He suffered and He laid down. He gave up His life. And though Christ was buried, He physically rose from the dead, proving that He actually has power over death and can save those who fear of death or subject to lifelong slavery. And with this rescue came to us the promise that we will be presented before God holy and blameless and without reproach. And so flowing out of this review of our peace with God, Paul moves straight into, back in chapter 3, he moves right into addressing how this affects our relationship to others. And in fact, it's the bulk of the passage that we have before us today. So if you'll turn back to chapter 3, verse 12, and look with me. And we can see that the reason Paul spent so much time, and the reason that I'm acknowledging it at length here, on acknowledging how the Gospel changed our relationship with God, is because it dramatically and intricately affects how we relate to other people. You see, in Colossians, in and quite frankly, in all of Paul's letters, Paul is intensely concerned about our human relationships. And there's many reasons for this, but this morning we should just simply acknowledge that Christ did not simply come to save individuals from hell. Christ came to establish His visible kingdom. And it's made up of not a person, but people. A bride, a body, a household, a flock, a nation. And this is why our Lord, when He was asked how to live a righteous life, He responded with what we know as the great commandment, saying what? Love God and love people. That, that, that was it. Love God and love people. So friends, we must remember that God did not come simply to redeem a person, but a people He did not save us in isolation. He did not save us for isolation. He did not save us alone. Instead, He has called us into a glorious relational culture where the peace of Christ, in fact, reigns. So looking at verse 12, let's read, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. 
And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. I want you to notice with me this particular phrase in verse 15. Find it in your copy of the Scriptures. Because I think it's the anchor of these four verses. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Does it strike you odd that peace would be described as ruling? I know that for me, I thought on this a lot. This was one of the things that took most of my thought. And as I read this, that's what jumped out to me initially. We don't normally think of peace as being something that rules. I don't even know especially what it meant that peace would rule. And what does it mean that the peace of Christ would rule? Well, here's what I think Paul is saying. I think Paul is saying that people who understand that they were once enemies of God, but that Christ has reconciled them back to God, are now ruled by that same peace with which God initiated towards them. People who have been changed by the Gospel now are ruled by the peace that God made with them. Christ's peace-working agent, His peace-making work on the cross ignites and it fuels and it charges our peacemaking efforts with others. Because those who are ruled by the peace of Christ, we actually look back on the cross with such awe and such gratitude that now our hearts are bent in a new way. Bent towards living at peace with one another, even with our enemies. Our hearts can have a new default, a new tendency, a new rule. And so as we look at these qualities of Christian love that Paul is mentioning, we see that they're vastly different from the world's description of what they would describe towards enemies, of course. And one of the dangers, and one thing I don't think Paul is saying, Paul's not saying, be kind, be meek, be patient, right? He's saying that this flows out of a heart of gratitude because of what God has done. So don't read this text like that. It is a command, it is a description of who we are now in Christ, but it is not merely an empty command. So if you look in verse 12, you see that people who are ruled by the peace of Christ now have hearts of compassion. They have eyes to see the suffering and the struggles of those around them. Whether it's major or minor suffering, they have new eyes to see. They're inclined to serve and lovingly seek to ease the suffering of those around them. They don't seek to one-up each other in each other's circumstances. Rather, they're eager to set aside their own interests and walk in the lives of others. They rejoice with those who rejoice and they mourn with those who mourn. People who are ruled by the peace of Christ are also kind. God's chosen ones are keenly aware and baffled by the kindness that has been shown to them. And so they're compelled to be charitable to those around them. They're not simply kind to those who are like them, or attractive, or beautiful, or easy to get along with. They don't manipulate with flattery and praise, using their kindness as a way for personal gain. Because their love for others is without condition. Their hearts are sturdy, sturdy enough to be kind to ungrateful children, deceitful co-workers, critical spouses, 
and lying friends. You see, people who are ruled by the peace of Christ are also humble. People who understand what took place on the cross are drastically different because what happened on the cross humbles us. They understand that what took place on the cross was actually a statement about their sin. They understand what the cross said about them. Their new attitude is, my sin is so pervasive and so wicked and so extensive that God Himself had to come and die that I might be pardoned. No one could ever say anything worse about me than what God said about me on the cross. So then they don't feel the need to compete with others because the playing field's already been leveled. God's judgment was on all. And these people who are ruled by the peace of Christ are also meek. When Christians understand the cross, they don't get bent out of shape when they're taken advantage of. They don't feel compelled to defend themselves against every injustice. They know there's a judge. And they know that if they really had justice, they'd be in hell tonight. People who are ruled by the peace of Christ are also patient. They look back and they marvel at God's patience displayed towards them in past sins. And so as they're sinned against over and over and over again by all those around them, they're safe and they're at rest. They know they live in a fallen world. They know that here sin reigns. But their hearts are in a new kingdom and there's a new rule. The peace of Christ is ruling in new hearts. And finally, we see that people who are ruled by the peace of Christ are both quick and eager to forgive. If you look in verse 13, we see bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. The claim to be a Christian is agreeing with all that God said about us on the cross. And so as we come to see ourselves as sinners, our obsession with judging others, our lust to see other people get what they deserve, melts away with a new heart of forgiveness. We understand that no one can sin against us more severely than we've sinned against the Almighty God. So our old desires to seek revenge and the need to demand restitution for even the slightest of offenses gives way to forgiveness. Because the cross of Christ reminds us of the severity of our guilt and the scandal of forgiveness and grace that we've received. Spurgeon once said that when we forgive, it's a poor and humble business compared with God's forgiving us. Because we're only forgiving one another. That is, forgiving fellow servants. Whereas when God forgives us, it's the judge of all the earth who's forgiving. Not His fellows, but His rebel subjects, guilty of treason against His majesty. For God to forgive is something great. For us to forgive, though some think it is great, should be regarded as a very small matter. I don't think Spurgeon is saying that forgiveness is something to be taken lightly. Because the Scripture's standard for how often we do this is so high. Do you see it? 
Because as every complaint arises, whether it's just or unjust, whether it's right or wrong, sinful or righteous, every complaint that arises, we are now given the opportunity to forgive. Because it gives us a chance to point back to what Christ did on the cross, to point other people to Calvary, the ultimate testimony of grace. And as others sin against us, as they disappoint us, as they frustrate us, we have the occasion to say, Friend, you've sinned against me. You've hurt me. But don't worry. Because I know what it's like to be forgiven. In fact, I stand in much greater need of forgiveness than than your sin could ever require of me. I know what it's like to be forgiven. And then forgiveness freely flows. For, for, for us to have hearts that are ruled by the peace of Christ is to have a heart that doesn't get over the cross. To have hearts that absorb wrongdoing and sin from others because we know we will never be called to forgive more than we have in fact been forgiven. What sin could be greater? What sin could be too great? What betrayal too penetrating? What injustice so severe? that it could cost us more than our sin cost our dear Lord. So now that we're no longer compelled and bound up by having to demand justice from other people, our hearts are freed up to one of our core values that we have. (laughs) Authentic Christian relationships. We can now lovingly move towards each other because we're not scared that our sin would be exposed anymore. It's already been exposed. We're not scared that other people will judge us for our sins. Christ already judged us. You can't speak more harshly about my sin than Christ did. You can't see more of my sin than Christ has. I have nothing to hide. Because what Christ did on the cross, I'm free to move close to people. Not afraid, but with a sturdy heart. We don't have to justify ourselves. Christ has justified us. So now, as we struggle with sin, and as we live with one another, there's a new rule. Now, as we move towards each other, seeking an authentic Christian relationship, I'm not surprised or appalled by your sin. I'm sympathetic. I sin too. I too know what it's like to have a heart burdened with sin. I know this sin defames God and hurts others. It, it hurts me. I understand that. But now, because I'm free, I can bear your burden with you. Do you see how the Gospel frees us up to move closer to each other? We no longer have to stay at a distance, but we can move in bearing burdens with one another, even absorbing the consequences and the pain of one another's sin. What else could that possibly mean? We don't just put up with or overlook each other's sin, but rather we move towards one another, helping each other engage our sinful hearts with the Gospel of Christ. And we can do it over and over and over and over again. Friends, my sin led to the slaughter of God. The very Creator of the world whose breath 
by whose breath all things were created. And when He was on the cross, Christ was in fact holding the very cross together. Colossians 1.17 He willingly subjected Himself to be crucified by a people He created on a world that He ruled with instruments that He created. Christ didn't just bear with me. He bore my sin. On His body. On a tree. Christ bore the very wrath of God on my behalf. And so now, overflowing with the thankful heart, I want to be at peace with my fellow man, no matter how heinous the crime. And as we see that Paul calls us to these these peaceful, authentic Christian relationships, we see that the goal is not just peace. That's not the ultimate end, but we're called to actually do something together. There's a higher goal. So if you look with me in verse 16, we see this. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So now that we've acknowledged that we're enemies, and now that we have peace with God, and now that we can have peace with man, now what? Now what do we do? Good thing Paul tells us. He says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Dwell richly in your hearts. Do you remember the words of our Lord in Matthew 4.4 4, where He says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. You see, Christ taught us, and Paul reaffirmed over and over again, that our souls were built for something. We were built to function and to run on the Word of God. The same way the body runs on food. And this is so true of the church. It's also true that for a Christian without regular biblical nourishment, we begin to malfunction and break down and starve. My wife and I fancy ourselves runners. Or perhaps, um, maybe I should say that my wife's a runner and I chase her. It's probably the better way to describe this. Um, And we've often had people over the years come up to us and ask us, you know, I see, I see you running. You're a big guy. How do you do that? Like, can you help me start running? Can you help me with the plan? Like, there's lots of shoes. Do I need a watch? What's going on? So my wife and I have regularly, a couple different times, of all ages, I might say, uh, we've helped write up these plans and given to people to help them start getting, getting off the couch and to walk and to run. And so what, what usually happens, and this is, this is pretty regular, they'll, they'll come back to me and they'll say, well, you know, I started running, but I felt terrible. Right? That's what most people think of when they think of running. And so, you know, we start to troubleshoot the problem. We say, okay, well, you know, what kind of shoes were you wearing? Were you leaning forward a little bit? Did you stretch? All those sorts of things. We talk about hydration and nutrition and clothing and temperature and all this stuff. And uh, let's say that somebody came to me and they said, you know, I felt, I felt so weak. I felt uh, nauseated and tired. I just, I didn't feel like I could, I didn't feel like I could barely move. And so I said, well, what'd you eat? Well, I didn't, I didn't get to eat anything today. I, I ate yesterday. I had some grapes yesterday. I'm like, well, there's the problem. You have to eat. Your body needs calories to exercise, to move. Friends, 
I would, I would dare say that many of us are trying to run this race marked out for us with endurance, and yet we don't feed. We don't eat. In fact, there's probably some of us who haven't eaten in weeks. This may be the only time that we have a dose of Scripture. If you wonder why your heart is constantly malfunctioning, or if you sense so little affection in your heart that you wonder if you're even a Christian, how has your Bible intake been? Have you eaten? I fear that in this age of distraction, there's so much spiritually processed food, or should I say processed spiritual food, that we can think that we're nourished when we're not. We can think that eating a marshmallow here or some cotton candy there, that though it tastes good and it feels good and it dissolves quickly and I don't have to really work for it, that that would nourish our hearts. Don't let your heart be tricked into the fact that you can live without the bread of Christ. I love the story in the scriptures (laughs) where the disciples are like, Lord, have you even eaten recently? He's like, oh, I got food you don't even know about. And I would be so frustrated with that because I would kind of like, when are you talking in metaphor? And I was talking about actual food. And, And Christ is saying that food to him falls so low on his priorities compared to consuming the actual word of God. And so Paul knows that. And that's why he's saying here, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And he gives us three ways that we need to be doing this. The first one we see in verse 16 is that of teaching. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching. As a church, we've been walking through the book of 1 Timothy together. And we've already seen the importance of public, regular proclamation of the word of Christ. And yet we're reminded here again that in order for the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly, we need to subject our hearts again and again and again to the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. The Scriptures teach us, as I mentioned earlier, that God, when that God wants to accomplish something, He speaks. When God wants to accomplish something in your life, He speaks. His word will never return void. It will never fail in its mission. God always wins. And we also promise that when God's word goes forth, it multiplies. So as we gather together each week for corporate worship, we have services that are not just flavored with Scripture, but saturated with Scripture. Have you ever been to the church where their service is sort of flavored with Scripture? A drop here, a dollop here? A shake here. I love at this church that our elders so carefully craft our services to where the Word of Christ is held out for you to feast. We recite it together. We pray it together. Do you hear? Do you see in your worship God the way they have structured our service? It's all centered around who God is and what He's done and how we can respond based on God's revelation to us. Teaching is utterly essential to the life of the church and to the life of the Christian. And we're also commanded to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, not just through teaching, but look, also through admonishing one another. Now this this word that's used here 
is interesting. I don't, I don't think admonishment is a word we often use. I don't. I, don't, I was like, is it, I was wondering, is it positive? Is it negative? And we see throughout the scriptures, it's translated in a couple of different ways. Sometimes it's translated something like a warning, but other times it's instruction and, and even encouragement, a preventative involvement. And remember, the goal here is not teaching for the sake of teaching or admonishment for the sake of admonishment, but that admonishing would take place so that the Word of Christ would dwell in us richly. Think about that for a moment. That means that as fellow Christians, we have an obligation to each other. We have an obligation to do everything we can to ensure that the Word of Christ is dwelling in each of us richly. That is so much of what church membership is about. That we are covenanting together. I'm going to help you have the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. I need you to help me have the Word of Christ dwell in me richly. Because my heart is prone to wander. We could describe admonishment as simply the act of reminding each other of who God is and what He's done and the impact it has on our life. And we need that reminder. Admonishment means that we can strategically enter into each other's lives with carefully crafted words that are intended to help each other remember the promises of God, the dangers of sin, and the importance of the Great Commission. Because we are prone to forget things that are amazing. Admonishment, admonishing one another, demands that we have some proximity, right? Admonishment generally does not work well from a distance. Admonishment assumes that not only do we have careful watch over our own hearts, but that we have a careful watch over the hearts and the lives of other people. And so the question is, how does that happen? What kind of context do we have that you and I can be close to each other so that we can know the realities of each other's hearts? It's important to understand the external needs, but oh, how important it is to know what is taking place in the hearts of those whom God has placed in your covenant body. To do this, we have to live together in such a way that affords the opportunity to be close. In American culture, where the individual's king and where technology seems to rule our communication, it's far too easy to hide behind text messages or small talk or even shallow prayer requests. Instead, we must live near each other and actually know each other. It's so easy to live with someone and not actually know them. In order to have a relational culture where strategic words of admonishment flow, we need to remember the qualities of the enemy who is now at peace with God. Remember, let the peace of Christ rule your heart. Admonishment works best when the peace of Christ is ruling our hearts because we're at peace with God and can be at peace with each other. The more we grow close together, my, my family is here, and uh, you, you live really close with family. Your family is the one who knows your quirks and your oddities and your sin better than anyone. And my family has been remarkably patient to me over the years. And if you think about family relationships, they are fruitful because they are close. They are close. That's what must take place in Christian, in authentic Christian relationships. 
And remember that as our sin and as our frailties and as our quirks and as our bad habits are exposed, we don't need to be afraid because we're all on level playing ground, loved by God and called to love each other. This is why I was encouraged at the church's last conference, last church conference, where the church voted unanimously, I believe, to affirm the elders' proposal to begin establishing small group settings because this is the goal. To be close. To be close to one another. Because, friends, you need the protection of a church. You need someone watching over your hearts. Do you remember Jeremiah? Do you remember what he said? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? My heart is deceitful. It lies to me. It tricks me. It is sick. I need help. That's what the community of God is for. That's why God has called us, bringing us closer together. We say together, prone to wander, Lord, I fear it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart. Take and seal it. But this brings us to the last means that we have for the Word of Christ dwelling in us richly. We've considered how teaching is crucial for us. We've considered how admonishment is essential for us. But now we come to one of my favorites, and that is singing. Look with me. Back at the text, verse 16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We learn from this text that in order for the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly, we have to sing. Isn't that interesting? We have to sing. Let the Word of Christ dwell within you richly, so sing. Paul gives us some really clear direction here on what we sing and how we sing. Right? It's not just anything. He seems to be making the point that what we sing actually matters. We should sing together so that the Word would dwell within us richly. Then our singing, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs must be, they should be clearly reflective of what God has revealed about Himself in His Word. Not too vague. Not sort of seasoned or flavored with the Scriptures, but permeated with the Scriptures. We need to sing what is true. We need to sing what God has revealed about Himself. I love, am I right, that the song that we sang this morning, the, this original to us, right? It's not particularly exciting. Did you? Who wrote it? Great job. It's not particularly exciting, but it's true. It's true, and we can sing it, and it's catchy. It's letting the Word of Christ dwell within us richly. We may not hear that on the radio, but it is getting into our hearts and into our minds what is true about God and what is true about our life together. You see, singing helps us internalize and believe what is actually true. It actually helps us feel what is true. You see, our emotions are constantly in flux, right? 
My personality, I don't, I don't know about you, but my personality, I sense in my emotions, they're constantly moving. They're changing. They're up. They're down. They're, I'm sad. I'm happy. I cannot trust my emotions. But the Bible is full of commands about how I'm supposed to feel. I'm supposed to rejoice in the Lord. How do I control my emotions? I constantly remind myself what is true. And one of the primary ways we do it is through singing. Our emotions are untrustworthy. And so music is a kind act, a kind gift of God. A mercy to us that helps serve as an emotional anchor for our souls. As we sing together, we're acknowledging what is true and we're pleading with God as a people. Make this true for us. There's something about the way that God designed music that it sticks with us. It gets into us. And this isn't by accident. This, isn't, this is by design. Since we have hearts that are so prone to doubt and so prone to forget God, and since God has saved us and called us into a collective, relational community together, it makes sense that we sing together and we declare what we know is true. That even if I don't feel this, I know that Christ alone is my cornerstone. Singing is the corporate expression of, I believe, help my unbelief. It's so easy for the church to accidentally adopt the culture's purpose for music. And, and I believe that music is a gift of God. I, there's so much music that is beautiful. All different genres, most genres perhaps I should say. Most genres. There, it's an expression that God created man in His own image. And we see beauty and creativity. But in the church, music has a really specific role. And what can be dangerous is that we could adopt music merely as a narcotic pleasure. One that satisfies our own desires, our own tastes, and our own preferences. It can lead to division. It can lead to tremendous selfishness. And it can hurt people. So our concern when we come together and as we sing, the primary concern is not how good are our musicians or how cool is our light show. The concern is, does this song remind me of what is true about God? Does this song give us as a body the opportunity to sing together in such a way that we can corporately express thanksgiving for what God has done? Our song, our song should not be an excessive acknowledgement of how good we are or how devoted we are, but rather of who God is and what He has done and what He has given to us. Stylistically, our music should be about serving one another. This church has a remarkable diversity in generations. And I think it's really neat. And it gives us an opportunity to serve one another. Our expression of love through music can be an eagerness to serve each other's preferences. Is this song easy for the congregation to sing together? Can we sing it well? Is it true? Is it right? Does it encourage? Because our singing and our teaching and our admonishing all has a purpose. It's a collective, joyful overflow of thanksgiving from a people who were once enemies of God. Hostile towards Him and hostile toward each other. But now, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, 
a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the Father through Him. May God bless the preaching of His Word.